0: It says, and when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So entering a ship of Andromadium, we put out to sea meaning to sail along the coasts of Asia. Look down with me in verse 7. And when we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salome. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near the city of Lycia. Now when much time had been spent, and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, "'Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss.' not only of the cargo and ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor off Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest, and winter there. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete, but not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclydon. And Father, we humbly ask that you would prepare our hearts. Lord, we ask that we would be able to hear your voice, that nothing would hinder from that being able to happen this morning that by your spirit you would speak unto our hearts through the word of God. And we ask this expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, Entering into storms, as we realize, is kind of just a part of life's journey. It's kind of impossible to make it uh, through this life experience without time to time entering into a storm. And the reasons that we enter into storms, however, can be different in different situations. Sometimes we find ourselves entering into a storm because maybe it's kind of a self-inflicted trial. We make a decision that we shouldn't make. And as a result of that, sometimes it brings us into some stormy waters Sometimes we may be doing everything absolutely right and the reality is we just each at times go through stormy waters, trials and challenges are just a part of life. It doesn't always necessarily mean we've done something wrong. Sometimes an illness or a setback or a family difficulty or just some major life experience that's very hard to go through is just a part of the journey here on this earth. Other times we go through stormy waters because maybe someone that we're on board with makes some bad decisions, and because we're kind of on board with them, we find ourselves subjected to stormy seas. So there are different reasons why we enter into storms. They always subject us to great difficulty and struggles when we're in them, and how we respond and navigate in the midst of storms is very important. In fact, it's an extremely important part of the process once we get ourselves into the recognition that we are indeed in a storm very clearly. And we see some of those concepts kind of unfolding as we go through chapter 27, both this week and next week. Remember the backdrop, Paul, after having been physically abused multiple times, after having been falsely accused of crimes he did not commit multiple times— After having been put through numerous trials, as we've seen in our recent chapters, he finally exercised his right as a Roman citizen to appeal unto Caesar, Uh, and that was his right as a Roman citizen to now bring his case before the emperor of the Roman Empire, and as he appealed to Caesar, that aligned really with an earlier promise that Jesus had actually made to Paul. Remember, Paul had heard Jesus say to him at one point, even as you testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome. So though Paul has appealed to Caesar, ultimately Jesus is coordinating all these things to get Paul to bear witness there in Rome. And Acts 27 now begins this journey of Paul as a prisoner to basically be transported to Rome. Look with me back in verse 1 as the chapter opens. It says, And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, of course, that's where Rome's located, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So the time had now come to transport Paul, as well as another group of prisoners, as well, from Caesarea all the way over to Italy, to the capital city of Rome, which was the Roman Empire, to appear before Caesar. In order to do this, it says there in verse 1, they had to sail to Italy, which was a very long voyage from where they were in Caesarea by boat out across over to the area of Italy. And it would include multiple trips. It would include having to stop at routine harbors along the way. You couldn't just make it as one journey. In fact, it also involved... Uh, being on multiple ships to make this long journey. And we're told in verse one that it was not only Paul being transported, but other prisoners as well. And these other prisoners were legitimate criminals, those who were probably under the death sentence and were more than likely being sent to Caesar and to Rome, not necessarily to be examined again as Paul with appealing his case, but more than likely just to appear in the Colosseum for entertainment as they were already sentenced to death. A lot of times they would use the Colosseum as just blood sport to see people put to death in gruesome ways. We're told in verse 1 as well that Paul at this point is put under the custody of a man named Julius who was a centurion, it says, of the Augustan Regiment. Now, a centurion, which means a commander over a hundred, these were typically very well-experienced, battle-trained individuals who had a lot of awareness of combat. They were tough, battle-hardened men with much military experience. And it's interesting in the New Testament, they are always spoken of in a very positive light. In the Gospels, we see centurions. In the Book of Acts, we see them mentioned. And these military commanders are always represented as very noble individuals, men of great character, not necessarily believers in the Lord, but men who were worthy of respect. Uh, men who were of good character and now we see paul put under the custody of one of these centurions it says of the augustine regiment which is probably an indication that it was of an elite special force group so uh, the idea here would be this man was you know kind of among the elite of the roman military and now paul under the custody of roman military protection is going to be transported to rome verse two tells us so entering a ship of Amadrotimum, Neum, and we're not going to try and say that again. We put to sea, meaning to sail along the coasts of Asia. And Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, one of the people that Paul had come to know, says, was also with us. Now, you can tell from verse 2 there, and the first person language that's being used in the plural sense that Dr. Luke, who we've talked about before, Luke is the one who wrote the book of Acts and gave record uh, to us, uh, the human instrument anyway. Dr. Luke, who it seems had become sort of a personal physician to Paul the Apostle and a a ministry partner, good thing if you're going to travel all around in missions work to have a a doctor is a part of your missions team. It seems that at this point, Dr. Luke is again with Paul and even traveling with him over to Rome at this point in time because you notice the language there in verse 2. He says, verse 2, we put out the sea, and he says that this man, Aristarchus, was with us. So Luke's including himself in the account now. And as they start out sailing, their plan was to skirt along really what would be the coastline of Asia Minor, these areas that Paul had gone and done missionary work in before, and to skirt along the coastline northwest, the purpose was to use the landmass to shield themselves from the winds to make it easier to travel. And it would be much easier to pull into docks and port because there were many stops that had to be made if you were going to make it all the way over to Italy. So skirting the coastline gave them the ability to just pull in when necessary and dock periodically and even change boats on a few occasions, as we'll see. Verse 3 tells us, And the next day we then landed at Sidon, And Julius, that commander, treated Paul kindly, gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. So interesting, verse 3 records for us that Luke telling us that this man Julius, though a a hardened Roman military commander, was treating Paul with a measure, it says, of kindness, and that measure of kindness was by giving him liberty to go and visit friends in this territory of Sidon and to receive care from them. Now, Uh, likely there were either believers it seems in the area of sidon at this point maybe even potentially at this point a church that had been established there verse three just tells us in the text that clearly paul had friends there and he was permitted to go and spend time with them and to receive care from them that is as paul went and visited them and interacted with them they invested some helpful things into Paul's life. Now, take notice, if you would, from verse 3, how Paul, and we've seen this multiple times, always seemed to seek out fellowship with other believers. Uh, we see this repeatedly in the book of Acts. We see Paul visiting with people, we see Paul spending time with people, we see Paul ministering together with people, and, and Paul always sought out fellowship with other believers. He understood the purpose of maintaining relationships and the value of interacting with friends and other people. And important for us to realize, especially as we look at a chapter about a storm, as we're going to see in being in storms, part of navigating life, and especially the difficult times, the challenging circumstances, the stormy seas that we'll go through from time to time, part of that is understanding in that journey, you have to recognize that you are not intended to journey through life alone. That's not the way God wired us. God wired us to be relational people. God did not intend for us to isolate and try and be like an island and keep everybody out of our lives and cut everybody out and always look for ways to avert interacting with people and letting people know what's going on in our lives. And that can be a common tendency that we can have in our humanity sometimes. And I want you to know, if that can tend to be your tendency, that's not healthy. Uh, God's intended for us to live in, interconnected lives, not to live in such a way where we have this fierce, independent spirit. And for whatever the reason may be, where we think that we don't need to interact with people, that's never healthy. And we see Paul here going and spending time, taking initiative, establishing and maintaining relationships. He's going and visiting friends and receiving from them some of the care that he needed at that time in his life. And I think it's an important reminder for all of us to recognize that we need friends in our lives to some degree. Uh, there needs to be a few people, at least in your life, that you can talk with and interact with and receive care from when it's needed. And I want to encourage you, make sure that you make whatever effort is necessary to stay connected to people. Uh, and I say make whatever effort, because I'll tell you, as a pastor, one of the things that I hear people say frequently, I hear Christians say this frequently, we don't feel like we're connected to anybody. I can't tell you how many times I, I hear Christians say, well, we just don't feel connected. Well, the, first of all, the Bible says that he who has friends must himself be friendly. And sometimes the people who will say we don't feel connected or we don't feel any sense of connection uh, aren't really making a whole lot of effort to connect with people and to stay connected. But yet then they say those things and wonder why they're struggling. So be careful of that. We need to be connected. We need to interact with people. Paul here, even a great man of God, he's spending time with people. He's receiving care that he needs in his life as well as just certainly Paul always cared for others. And I think it's unique as well that it says that the centurion gave Paul liberty to go and visit his friends. Now, that says something about Paul as well, because understand, according to Roman law, if a Roman military guard lost track of one of his prisoners he would pay for it with having to lose his own life so for this roman military commander to give paul freedom to go visit his friends while they're on this journey over to rome shows that paul's reputation must have spoke loudly of credibility of trustworthiness because when paul said hey i got some friends here on sidon would you, would you mind if i went and visited with them for a little while that this roman commander said yeah Paul, I, I, sure just make sure you're back on time before we leave and you know don't escape and don't run off because i'll lose my head if you do he actually trusted paul which shows that paul must have had a, a pretty good reputation of credibility he had that kind of a reputation that when he would ask he was able to be relied upon i think as believers you know god help us i hope in our jobs i hope with people we interact with that that our reputation speaks of honesty and credibility and trustworthiness uh that people are able to give us that sense of liberty and and rely upon us and what a beautiful thing paul he goes he spends some time and verse four then says and when we then put out the sea from there we sailed under shelter of cyprus because the winds were contrary uh Verse five says, and when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and then Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. So because the winds were starting to blow against them in a certain direction, here we again see them using nautical wisdom and skill that they had, uh, just basically doing what they can to strategically use the island of Cyprus as a way to kind of shelter themselves from the winds that would be blowing against them. If you were to look at a map, basically what they're doing is they're, they're kind of skirting and going in between the island and the mainland and using that as sort of a tunnel to keep them from catching the winds more strongly against their boat. Very practical. They're moving northwest along the, close, uh, the coastline between the island and the mainland. And the next port, we're told in verse 5, that they now come to and they actually stop at and dock is to the port of Myra, which was a city off of Lycia. Now, that might have taken up to about two weeks just to get to this spot here. And Myra, we know historically, was a flourishing seaport. A lot of goods went from the area of Myra, where it was at there, over to the western territories, particularly the area of Italy and those west. Often large grain ships traveled from Rome to there. And this was a strategic location to then pick up a larger vessel that you would now need to make the rest of the journey as you start to head more towards open water to get ultimately over to Italy. So verse six tells us there in Myra, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy and he put us all on board. So, as was needed and as was expected, the centurion finds a large ship, a much larger vessel, and he puts everybody aboard this larger vessel because that's what they would need to cross the open seas over to Italy. Luke tells us he put us on an Alexandrian ship. Now, an Alexandrian ship was basically a large grain ship that would transport vast amounts of grain from the area where they were across to the west to supply the territory of Italy. Uh, These grain ships typically were bringing grain from Egypt, shipping it to Italy, and at this time period, historically, Egypt was basically the granary of most of the known world, particularly to supply Italy. So this grain ship carrying grain from Italy is now going to be utilized by the, the, the group to make this long journey over to Italy. And it was a rather large vessel, not only able to carry a lot of cargo, but we're going to see in verse 37 that there were actually 276 people aboard this Alexandrian grain ship. So a pretty substantial sized vessel to be able to have all that grain plus upwards to almost 300 people on board as well at this time. Verse seven goes on to tell us, and when we had then sailed slowly many days... And arrived with difficulty off of Snidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon, passing it with difficulty, we then came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. So you can tell from the language in verse 7 and 8 now, as the sailing begins, contrary weather as well as contrary winds and so forth are starting to have their effect in the fall season and starting to make it difficult for them even on this very large ship to move forward in the direction that they were seeking to go you can tell in verse seven and eight we read multiple times language indicating that it was getting challenging to head to where they're wanting to go you notice the repeated references there it says we sailed slowly It says we arrived with difficulty. The idea is it was slow progress. It was not easy trying to go the direction that they were currently trying to. He's saying every time we tried to keep going forward, it was a difficult process. Every time we kept trying to move forward, it wasn't easy. It was difficult and hard going. He even says there in the text that the wind was not permitting us to proceed, You see there in verse 7, the wind was not permitting us to proceed. In other words, Luke's saying the winds were clearly blowing against us. And though we were trying to go a certain direction and make progress, we kept having to adjust constantly because everything wasn't working out. And every time we kept trying to go that way, there was a restraining force stopping us, pushing us back and keeping us from moving Forward. Finally, he says, with even more difficulty, we at least made it to Fair Havens and were safe enough to arrive there. Now, let me say by way of application, as we just read this record here and what's going on, sometimes in life, when we find ourselves, like these journeying on this boat, facing difficulty after difficulty, experiencing hard circumstances, not permitting us to proceed forward, in a direction we're trying to go, sometimes that's an important indicator. If you're trying to go a particular direction and it is difficulty after difficulty, hard after hard, not working out after not working out, and it seems like though we keep trying and nothing's permitting us to move forward, that may be an indication that you want to pay attention to. Look, I I understand, granted, the devil may try and resist us at times. I'm not looking to debate that. The Bible even says at times Satan hindered us. So there are times when Satan and maybe spiritual warfare may be hindering us, and we need to be aware if that's what's going on. But I also want to say, be careful of always just registering that that's the reason why you can't go forward. Be careful of always just thinking that every time it's always spiritual warfare that's resisting you and holding you back. I think we need to humbly remember that our God is in control of all things. And what doors he opens, no one can shut. And I think we need to remember in circumstances, God's in control and coordinating the affairs of life and ultimately has the final say in everything, even in spiritual warfare, if that were going on from time to time. And it just may be, I know I found in my life, sometimes God may be allowing it for to, be, to be difficult to try and move in a particular direction because maybe it is actually God himself for a reason being the one not permitting us to proceed forward. Maybe God who knows all things or understands things that we're not seeing yet or has a different plan and his sovereignty or maybe just timing or all the different reasons there could be. We could continue to go on and on identifying reasons. It just may be that God is the one not permitting us to proceed forward. That God's the one actually trying, if you would, to hold us back by making it difficult to make progress. And I just wanna say use wisdom and humility, pay attention. We don't ever want to be striving against God. We don't ever want to be striving against God's circumstances if he's the one who's ultimately doing that. So they're struggling here, but at least they've made it to a spot after much difficulty where they've settled in. They're still safe. They've made it to fair havens, but it's been difficult travel recently. And verse nine says, now when much time had been spent, and sailing notice was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor off Cree opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there. So Luke is identifying here for us in our text, particularly in verse nine, the time of year it was and the whole point and reason why it was both unwise and unsafe to try and keep trying to move forward despite the difficulties they were finding themselves facing. You notice what he says again in verse 9? It says, much time had already been spent. Again, that is due to the recent slow, minimal progress as they're fighting against resistance to keep trying to move forward and due to contrary weather problems, they had used up a great deal of time already. Luke's saying, look, we already had spent a lot of time doing this. And he says, now, because, verse 9, the fast, see it? The fast was already over. That's another identifying thing. The fast, there's a reference to the Day of Atonement. That one day in the calendar year when the Jews would seek God for mercy and atonement for their sins, which indicates that we're now at late fall and, and progressing toward the winter months at this point in time. So it's identifying mark. And he says, therefore, at this time, this is key, verse 9 says, sailing was now dangerous. After all that had transpired, he says, at this point, sailing was now dangerous. There was a high probability they were going to get caught in a deadly storm. Now, it was a known fact among not only those who were experienced on the seas, but just travelers in general, that sea travel was relatively best up until mid-September. And then from mid-September to mid-November, the fall months, travel got difficult. That's what they were experiencing in the prior verses, and it got even a little bit risky with storms. But from mid-November through winter, sailing was virtually impossible, and it was very, very dangerous. It was almost risky and foolish to even consider doing anything other than just wintering down somewhere. So that's typically what they would do. They would seek to winter down somewhere and wait things out until the spring came, and then they would begin their travels once again. That was just sensible judgment. good stewardship, and it avoided major risk. So because sailing's now dangerous, it was not just an issue of, well, we gotta keep pushing and struggling and we can make it further. It was more an issue of, it would be very poor stewardship to try and push forward. It wouldn't be wise. It'd be risky and harmful to keep going on various different levels. And Paul, sensing they're inclined to keep voyaging and press onward, he tries, as we can see here, to interject some reason into their decision to press forward. That's why Paul there says to them in verse 10, "Men, I perceive this voyage, because he knows they're going to try and press forward, is going to end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo, but also of our own lives. Now, the reason Paul's saying this from what we read down in verses 11 and 12 is they basically want to, at this point in time, they want to try one more time to just take it one step further. And, and they're thinking to themselves, look, if we could just try one more time to get one more step further over to the area of Phoenix, just 40 miles further, they want to risk one more journey. Verse 12 tells us, however, there that the harbor that they were at was not suitable to winter in. The idea is they're at fair havens, which sounds like a good place to just stop. Doesn't it just fair havens? That sounds safe. That sounds wise. But it says that harbor wasn't suitable to winter in. The idea there is, first of all, it it wasn't suitable in the sense that Fair Havens was a smaller port. It was more exposed to the weather, and they thought that it would would batter the boat more when the winter storms came. But the bigger issue is that we know as well, Fair Havens was a very small port, which means like many small kind of little communities, we might say like a podunk town or something, there wasn't much to do. So you know what 276 passengers are thinking – We will be bored to tears if we have to stay here all winter long. What are we going to do all winter in Fairhaven's? There's nothing to do here. Phoenix is just 40 miles up the coast. And Phoenix has got stuff happening. It's a much better port. Not only was it better for docking ships, but... It had a lot of activity and entertainment and things to do. And so they're all motivated thinking, hey, let's just try to get the Phoenix. And it says there that the majority advised against what was Paul was saying, saying, let's see if we could just make it to Phoenix. Well, those are always bad last words. Let's see if we could make it. You might want to think about that. Let's see if we could. And so they're, they're pressing. And Paul, knowing it was dangerous tries to advise them in verse 10 saying, man, I perceive that this voyage is gonna end with disaster if you do that. Not only loss of the cargo, but loss of lives. Now understand, Paul knows it's dangerous. And at this point in time, Paul's already written 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And in that chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul mentions he had already been through not one, but multiple shipwrecks. So what Paul's saying in essence is, look boys, this is not my first rodeo. I've done the shipwreck thing, tried it a few times. In fact, spent a day and a night in the deep. And so Paul's just trying to offer some counsel to them. He'd been down this road a few times before he would gained a little wisdom from experience and such matters. And I think Paul also keep in mind was, was certainly a man in tune with the Lord and he heard from the Lord and the spirit directed him. And I like how Paul, however, in verse 10, he doesn't get hyper spiritual, He just very graciously offers some counsel in verse 10 without being hyper-spiritual. He just says, you know, I I perceive this voyage isn't going to work out well. I perceive if we take that journey, I perceive if you move forward in that direction one more time, I don't think it's going to turn out too well. I think it's going to end up in loss and problems. And yet he lets them, however, still make their own decision, offer some counsel, but then he lets them make their own decision in the situation afterwards but he says i sense if you push forward attempting to do what you are and you head in that direction it's not only going to end up being difficult paul says i foresee a disaster i foresee a disaster something really good not happening in that situation and as a man of god who cares about people he just tries to prevent their path However, verse 11 and 12 says, nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman, the the captains, those on board, and the owner of the ship. Why? Because they're thinking about profit. Paul, if we delay here, that's more months before we bring in the profit from everything on the boat and we've got nautical experience. You're just a rabbi. What do you know about sailing on the seas? We can make it 40 more miles. And so basically the majority of the crew chimes in and it says that they decide to press forward to see if they can reach Phoenix. So they disregard Paul's counsel, and they press forward, and we're going to see this was a very bad decision, a very bad decision that brings destructive consequences. And in light of that, let me, if I could, by way of application in the midst of this, help identify a few contributors, if I could, to how to make a really bad decision. You almost titled this morning, How to Make a Really Bad Decision. It would have been an interesting title, how to make a really bad decision. Well, let's just consider a few of the things briefly before we move on and see the consequential storm they go into as a result of this. How did they end up making a really bad decision? Well, one thing's obvious if you're taking a consideration, if you want to stay away from making a bad decision, here's one way not to make a bad decision. They were striving. They were striving. They were seeking to push forward in risky and presumptuous ways and ignoring wise caution. They were striving. They were pushing forward after they had already tried to push forward multiple times, and they're now striving to push forward once again. Secondly, they're exercising in patience. They're, they're simply just not willing to wait for something to come to pass in a certain amount of time. Instead, they want to get to a certain spot as soon as they can. And in patience and Presumption and striving often are contributors to bad decisions, to decisions that end up in bad situations. They're also being driven mainly by a desire for experiencing enjoyment. Oh, this is boring. Phoenix would be so much more fun. And and if we're driven by pleasure or if we're driven by the desire for personal profit, how many times have people made really bad decisions because they were driven by the primary agenda being what's the most advantageous personally, what's the best financial, and and they're driven by finances alone and financial profit, and they end up getting themselves in bad situations because greed and money is what was driving them forward. Some other things we see them doing here is they're justifying their decision off of what the majority thinks was acceptable. It says right there in the text, the majority advised to set sail. And that's a really... Clear way to make a bad decision. Why well, I'm making this decision because this is what the majority of people would do in this situation. Well, I talked to a professional in this industry and they said this is what everybody does in this situation. And you know what? Sometimes the majority is wrong. Wrong. Just because the majority in the world does things a certain way doesn't mean necessarily it's a right decision. And I'll tell you one other thing they're doing is they're not only using their own human reasoning. But very clearly, as you can tell from the text, they're ignoring counsel. They're ignoring warning. God graciously, through Paul, spoke to them and gave them a warning. Paul said, I perceive if you do that, it's going to be a bad decision. It's going to be a disastrous decision. But they ignore counsel. stems from godly sources and they push forward proverbs 22 and 27 two times this verse comes about a prudent man foresees evil and hides himself the simple pass on and are punished the idea is it's prudent when you see down the road that mm, i don't know that could be risky but you ignore all the warning signs and blinking lights and you just push forward Anyway, down that road and end up suffering as the result of that. So beware of these kind of factors that we see here. There are always pathways to raking bad decisions. And we want to avoid that when we can. And I'm sure if we're all honest, sometimes we can reflect back and realize, yeah, a few of the bad decisions I made, those were the factors. We'll learn from those things. Don't, don't repeat those things. So they decide they're going to push forward anyway. Look what happens in verse 13. It says, and when the south wind blew softly... Supposing they had obtained their desire, putting out the sea, they sailed close by Crete. So verse 13 indicates it appears at first that everything was working out. Do you see what it says there, verse 13? It says, the south wind blew softly. (laughs) And it appears they'd obtained their desire. And the picture there is they're, they're going, ah, do you see that? This guy told us not to sail. Look at that. We got the south wind at our back, blowing nice and soft, moving the direction we want to go. And it appeared they had obtained their desire. What a fitting picture. It appeared they made the right choice. It felt so right at first. For a brief time, it looked like, hey, Smooth sail, and this is going to work out. I don't know what this guy was all worried about. And it looked like it was all just going to work out. It seemed peaceful, but it was a false peace. And I'll tell you, isn't that often how it happens right at the beginning of a bad decision? Right? You can make a bad decision, and initially there's some enjoyment. It's fun. Seems like the wind's at your back, and it seems like it's kind of working out in the initial moments, and there's a false peace. But look at verse 14. But not long after—boy, that's fitting—but not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclidon. The tempestuous, stormy wind stirred up a Euroclidon, which would be like a fierce typhoon or a hurricane. And because of this bad decision, they sent themselves directly into a brutal storm, and now the stormy conditions— are battering upon them not long after the brief soft wind at their back. And I look at that and I think, man, that is fitting language, not long after. Because whenever we make a bad decision, that's always the next part. Not long after, then the storm comes. And that not long after maybe a few hours. It may be a few days, maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months. Might even be a few years. But eventually, not long after, you sail right into a major storm. And all the difficult, painful consequences and the disastrous experience, there's that unavoidable storm that we face in its misery. And verse 15 says, so when the ship was caught, boy, that's picturesque. When the ship was caught, they got caught in a storm. Now, couldn't get out of it, stuck in it. This is how it always happens. A person gets stuck in a storm once they kind of navigate their own way into it, and they could not head into the wind. They just let her drive. That is, they they realized they had no control over the stormy conditions. They just kind of realized this storm is controlling us now. There's nothing we can do to resist it. We're caught in the middle of it, and the wind is just driving them, and they're having to kind of ride it out. So having lost all control by the overpowering force of the storm, the next verse is kind of described now this struggle to just try and survive through it. It says, And running or aground, or running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. That was like the little lifeboat you'd pull behind that they would use to kind of you know taxi over to an island if they didn't have a dock there, the little rowboat they would get in. So they, they pull that in, and notice with difficulty they're securing that. Verse 17, and when we had taken it on board, We then used the cables to undergird the ship, fearing lest we should run aground on Sirtis stands and struck sail and were so driven. So again, they are just kind of scrambling at this point. One translation renders this, the sailors bound the ropes around the hull of the ship to strengthen it, for they were afraid of being driven across the sandbars, so they lowered the sea anchor to slow the ship and were driven before the wind. The picture here is they are doing everything they can at this point to just hold things together. They're just in desperation mode here, using every effort they can think of to try and reinforce and keep things from falling apart, doing what they can to slow the ship down. And, you know, folks, when we're headed towards a shipwreck— That's a lot of what we do in our humanity too. We start taking every measure we can think of when it's just spiraling out of control and we're doing everything to just try and hold it all together now. And we're just trying to scramble and do everything we can in desperation. Verse 18 says, and because we were exceedingly tempest tossed the next day, we lightened the ship. And then on the third day, verse 19 says we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now, you can tell you're in survival mode when you're taking precious goods and cargo that you were so worried about just a few moments ago. And now you're just throwing everything overboard and you are, are, are not concerned about anything in a moment of total desperation other than just surviving this thing somehow. And so they're just throwing things overboard, trying to lighten the ship. It says they were exceedingly tempest-tossed. Conditions were miserable and extremely difficult. And it is astonishing, truly. Is it not how miserable conditions can become as a result of bad decisions? It's amazing the storms that we can find ourselves in. And here, I mean, they are just doing everything they can to survive this thing. Verse 20 brings to, to clarity how desperate they really were. It says, now when neither sun nor stars had appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Now, the reason Luke mentions neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, keep in mind, they didn't have GPS in that day. They had nice navigation systems. You use the stars and the sun as a reference point to be able to guide your ways out in the open sea. And what Luke is indicating is we hadn't seen the sun or stars in days. We didn't know where we were. We didn't know if it was day or night. We were taking such a beating. We didn't know what in the world was going on. We were so out of sorts and out of control and conditions got so bad and desperate. Verse 20 says in the end of it, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. That is even the experienced fishermen and those on board and those who were sailors said, you know what the reality is we're perishing. They just, they gave up all hope. They got to a certain point where they were so desperate, they even abandoned the idea that somehow they could make it through all this. In their minds, they had come to the conclusion, I can't even see how we could be saved out of this nightmare. There's just no way at this point. All hope had been given up at this point that they somehow would survive through this. And you know, sometimes when people are driven into encountering a storm, it can get so bad so desperate, so overwhelming and crushing and tempest-tossed that that's where people come to in their minds, in their hearts, where they literally come to a place where they become utterly hopeless, where that they just give up all hope that somehow they could make it through this difficulty. They feel there's no way they could be saved. It's just It's too bad. I've gone too far. I've drifted way too far off course, and there is no way I can even be saved out of this. It's just not even possible. And they become just utterly hopeless in their desperation in the midst of those things. And verse 21 says, but after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them. Now, when it says after long abstinence of food, that's not because they were fasting and praying. It's because people were letting go of their food overboard. Nobody could even eat. They were so seasick after all they were going through. But Paul, it says, stands up, and look at this, verse 21. He says, men, you should have listened to me and have not sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. Now, let me just say, I don't think Paul is trying to rub their noses in this, but what he is doing is holding them personally responsible and accountable for the decision that they made. What Paul is doing in the midst of this, because he's going to encourage them, is he's letting them face full ownership for the decision that they made that created the circumstances that they were now facing and dealing with. And I want to say this morning, it is important when people make wrong decisions that they take ownership for their wrong decisions. We live in a culture that wants to dismiss everybody right away from feeling responsibility for their own wrong decisions. When people make poor choices and wrong decisions and we drive ourselves into suffering into a storm, we need to face the reality that we've done that. If we push ourselves into a difficult circumstance or drag others through suffering or disaster or loss, we need to take ownership and realize we made that situation. We created that storm. That's necessary, not to make us feel miserable, but to help us properly process what we've done and so that we can humbly learn from that experience and actually then end up making forward progress from that point and not repeating the same bad decisions. A lot of repeat bad decisions is because people never are allowed to feel the consequence of their own wrong decisions. Consequences are incredible teachers. When we were raising the kids, I call that reality discipline. Here's my counsel. When they got to a certain point, at times I started gradually as they got older, I started to get to a point where I said, look, here's my counsel. This is what I think you all do, but I'm going to let you make your own decision. And sometimes you even had to watch them make a decision and reality discipline. I sense stormy seas ahead, sweetheart, if you do that. But I'm going to let you sail that one if you want to. But it's a way to learn. It's a way to grow. And we need to let people, when they make certain decisions, have a sense of that awareness. I mean, yes, we want to be encouraging and gracious, but Paul says, look, you should have listened to me. You rejected my counsel, and that's why you ended up suffering the disaster and loss that you did. But he says, verse 22, and now I urge you, take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of God to whom I belong and serve, saying, do not be afraid, Paul, You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So look what Paul does. He offers a word of encouragement to give them hope in the midst of this storm. They feel utterly hopeless, and he says, look, the God who I belong to, who takes care of me and watches over me, he says, the God who I serve, who has purposes for me, says that I still need to fulfill his plan to testify in Rome. He has spoken to me and assured me that we don't have to be afraid despite how bad the circumstance looks. And Paul didn't sugarcoat it. He said, look, we're gonna lose the ship. We're gonna incur disaster. There are gonna be problems and difficult consequences, but he says, we're not gonna lose our lives. God's gonna have mercy upon us. He's gonna spare us. He's assured me That we're going to make it through. We're going to suffer some loss, he says, but there'll be no loss of life, he says, among you, only the ship. And sometimes, again, that's how these kind of things unfold. The way these things unfold, we have to be willing to accept the process. There may be some personal loss. If I make a bad choice, if you make a bad decision, sometimes attached to that is there may be some loss. We may have to suffer some consequences. There may be some disastrous things that take place, but here's the thing. You can regroup. You can regroup after a shipwreck. It's not the end of your life. It may cause some loss and cause some cost and some personal pain and difficulty, but it's not the end. It's not the end. You can survive it. By God's grace and God's help, you will survive it and you can regroup and rebuild on the other side and hopefully, it'll be the last storm and shipwreck you ever send yourself through. And here Paul is saying to them, look, God has given me encouragement. He's told me this. Verse 25, therefore he says, take heart, men, be encouraged, he says. For I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. So Paul was honest and realistic. He says the bad decision, it is set into motion things that, that we can't stop. The ship is going to run aground. There's going to be a shipwreck. And he says, we can't avoid that at this point in time. That's just the consequences of this direction that we're heading in. There's going to be a shipwreck. But Paul says that shipwreck is unavoidable, but we don't have to fear that it's the end of everything. He says, I believe God, he says, verse five, that it's going to be just as it was told me. Paul had a personal word from the Lord of hope and assurance that they were going to survive this. And that's what you need when you go through a really tough time. Not just, here's my theology on storms. Paul says, no, I believe what God told me. God told me something. He gave me hope in the midst of my horrible situation I had created for myself. He gave me a word of hope. And I love the way that Paul handles this. In hard times when people are in stormy seas and suffering and struggling, and they feel really hopeless, this is what they need folks they need somebody to speak hope in their situation like paul's doing here they need somebody to speak hope and to give them assurance of what god is able to do to be realistic yeah this is it's going to be tough now and there's going to be some casualty and loss and pain and difficulty but god's going to still work in the midst of this And there's hope on the other side of this. And there may be loss, but not all hope is lost because with God, there's always, always hope. You know, when people go through storms, we need to be individuals who would speak hope into their lives. People create a lot of storms. We're living in a world where lots of people have suffered shipwreck. Let's be individuals that speak hope into their lives when they find themselves in those situations. Turn them towards the Lord. They need somebody like Paul with leadership who can stand up. Here's this ship. It's sinking. The ship is sinking. It's on its way down. And Paul's on board, and he didn't even ask for the storm. But what does Paul do? He rises up and, as a good leader, displays help in the midst of these things. And you know what, folks? When people's ships are sinking and going down, they need people like you and I, hopefully as Christians— who can be individuals who can stand up in the midst of a sinking ship and say, look, it's hard, but we're in this together. And there's hope. I believe what God can do still. God's going to get us through this. He's going to get us to the other side. We're going to survive this. And to be able to stand up with leadership and bring encouragement and help people with a personal word from the Lord and to encourage them to believe when we're in storms, we can't listen to our feelings. We've got to believe God, believe God and what he's able to do. Let's stand together.